0: to have the band play Rocky Top. But, um, but I, I, thought, I thought better of it. Uh, I was on a stage one time where people started throwing stuff and I didn't want to repeat that today. Hey, welcome today to uh, Mount Perry North Canton. I know you've already been greeted. My name is Jeremy and I'm the campus pastor here. And we have been in a series of tough topics now for several weeks And this series, we've really tackled some tough topics, and today's topic is marriage. And when you first hear that, you may not think, well, marriage, that's not really a tough topic. But uh, marriage may be the, the toughest topic of all in this entire series when you really look at it because marriage is something that, by and large, we are familiar with, we are comfortable talking about in some respects, Uh, people are married in this room. Some people have been married in this room. Others who aren't yet married uh, maybe want to get married at some point in their life. And so it's something that uh, maybe with other issues that we've talked about, we talked about politics one week, maybe you just don't care about politics. You know, we, we talked about poverty. Maybe you're not really connected to the issue of poverty. We talked about racism. Maybe that's not something that really strikes your heart. We've talked about all kinds of different things. But today when we talk about marriage, we wanted to really tackle a subject that we think in some form or fashion all of us are connected to on some level. And so when we look at the statistics related to marriage, they are a little bit overwhelming. I'm not going to give you a ton of stats today. I gave you a lot of stats last week when we were talking about sexuality, and some of those overlap with today's message. But when we look at the idea of marriage, for the first time in the history of the United States, less than half of the American households include married people. That's the first time in the history of the United States that that's happened. And so we we understand that it's not necessarily something we can take for granted to say that everybody's married or everybody's going to be married. We have a lot of households that are not married. And so we understand that. But we want to tackle this issue today. From the context, from the perspective of God's word, and really an understanding from the church what we believe about marriage. And so uh, what I did is I invited my wife, Corey to come and to help me speak on this subject. She and I have done this several times in different ways, but she taught me everything I know about marriage. So I thought that would be great for you to get uh, to hear it straight from her rather than me trying to quote her. But uh, the other thing that we wanted to do, rather than just stand up here or sit up here uh, around a table and some stools, is to you know, and to just kind of talk about it, is we wanted to try to reenact a scene that we have experienced several times in our ministry over the last maybe 12 to 15 years, where we have had opportunity to sit across on a couch from another couple and talk to them about the things going on in their marriage. Now, let me just say right up front, we are not counselors. There are counselors in the room, and we are connected as a church to different counseling ministries. And if at any point today you say, man, I think in my marriage or in my life personally, I need counseling, let us know, and we'll connect you to someone that we think can help you. But we are not counselors. We're pastors. But God's calling on our life has allowed us to sit in rooms with married couples and with people who are maybe approaching marriage to talk to them about the issues related to marriage in general or their marriage specifically. And so we wanted to reenact that a little bit. And so to try to do that best, rather than have all of you sitting on a couch across from us, um, we've invited Pastor Trevor to sit in, uh, in your place and to really facilitate a conversation based around the questions that were submitted on the topic of marriage. So with that, Trevor, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah,
1: I'm playing the guy who doesn't have any clue about marriage. <laughs> this ought to be pretty easy. But, <laughs> but one, of the, one of the things I know a lot of people deal with is life gets busy. Right. How do we make time for each other while, while things are busy?
2: Um, I think that time is one of those things that we all wish we had more of. Um, you can't create more time. You have limited amount of time. Um, and I think prioritizing time in your marriage is key. You make time for what's valuable to you. You make time for what's important to you. know, I think the struggle in marriage for making time for it is you don't clock in or clock out. You don't get a paycheck. You don't get some big reward or a bonus or a you know, pay raise for spending time with your spouse. But I do think... Um, that you, you prioritize what you value. And if you say you value marriage, if you say you value your spouse, then you prioritize that time above all else. And I think that if you sat across the table from someone that had been married 50, 60, 70 years, and they put first their spouse and time, they would tell you that it was more important than any raise they ever got. Um, And that it was probably added more value to them than anything they ever achieved in life.
0: You know, Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it talks about, uh, it says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, will cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now this is the idea that right up front in the story of God and humanity, that God designed marriage to be a huge part of the story. And so right up front with the creation of man uh, and and woman, he he said, hey, marriage is going to be the way that we really kind of multiply the people on the face of the earth. But this verse to me also is representative of what I think Corey's talking about related to priority because it says a man will leave his father and mother. And I I don't know what your relationship was like with your mom and dad when you were growing up, but at some stage in your life, some type of parental relationship or authority figure in your life was probably important to you. It was probably maybe a valuable relationship. It was probably something that added value to your life and it was someone you looked up to. And so at some point in your life, you are called then away from that to leave that relationship and enter into another relationship. It's this idea that God was calling men and women away from things things that were valuable to them to something that was more valuable to them, something that was probably more important to their life in the long run if they were called to be married. And so I think even though this scripture does talk a little bit in a different context, I think this idea of prioritizing time and prioritizing your spouse is something that we see very, very early here, that we would push away from the other relationships, the other things, and that we
1: would value the, spou- the time with our spouse that we have. That's good. Along that same line, along the idea of having time, and creating time, especially for those that have kids. How important is it to set aside date nights?
2: Ooh, date nights. I think date nights are one of those things that if we're being completely transparent, I have four children. um, And And I do as well. Yeah, he has four children
0: too. (laughs) Well, she said that. I mean, like I was a part of that process. I birthed four
2: children. I birthed four children. And I was there. (laughs) But... Um, By the time, you know, like, by the time you pay for a babysitter and you get dressed and get cleaned up and get the house ready to have a babysitter over, by the time I get to the car, I really am in no mood for date night. I mean, if we're being honest, I would rather just crawl in the bed and go to sleep preparing for the date night. But I think that you have to know your spouse. I think that time and time together is more valuable. I think that society has probably given us this idea of what a date night looks like. You know, you think you get dressed up. You go to dinner, then you go to a movie, and then you pay your babysitter, and you come home and go to bed. And I don't think date nights have to look like that. I think date nights can look like a variety of things. I know we have young kids, and so for us, date night is sometimes getting the kids in bed and watching a movie downstairs on our couch together, and nothing more than that. But it's, it's considered a date night. I think it's more than labeling it a date night. I think it really goes back to the first question, which is prioritizing time, spending individual quality time. I am kind of a quantity person. I think that quantity of time with him is more important than quality. I mean, if he's sitting in the kitchen just conversating with me, that's valuable to me. That almost feels like a date night. That does something for me. Jeremy, on the other hand, is quality time. I mean, he wants the alone time, the date nights, focused time. Well, I don't consider it. Like, even if
0: I'm in the kitchen, I don't consider it a date if we're talking. And she's helping one of them get juice, and I'm helping one of them with a math problem. Like, I don't consider, like, oh, wow, this is really romantic right now. You know, like, I'm not looking at that as, man, this is you amazing. You
2: don't
0: think my pajama pants are hot?
2: They're
0: hot. You <laughs> They're hot. But let me just say, like, for me, I value quality time. So even though there is quantity of time, like even though we are together, we're in the kitchen or we're in the living room or we're driving down the road on a long trip, whatever it is, and we're talking and there's conversation being had, like the kids are screaming in the back back of the car or they're like, whatever it is, like I value quality time. Yeah. So again, whether it's dinner or whether it's a vacation away or whether it's a night out or whether it's whatever, a small group, being a part of our life group with other couples is almost a date night, a little bit because there's just individual time with you and with other adults for conversation. But I think for me, I have to understand Corey and understand that even though I value quality time, like alone time, one-on-one time, whatever that is, and it doesn't even have to be like really romantic time. it can just be something shared together, something fun together, she does value quantity of time, so I can't belittle sitting in the kitchen talking. I can't take the value away from sitting in the car driving and having the conversation interrupted every nine seconds, so Tucker can ask us if we're there yet, and Kinley's telling us she's got to go to the bathroom. Like, in the midst of that, there is something special about the time spent together rather than you go do that, I'll go do this, and we'll meet back up later if we have to. And so I think understanding
1: our spouse is a big part of that too. That's good. Kind of changing directions here and talking about something that isn't as fun and isn't as enjoyable to talk about as date nights and things like that. Why do we sometimes feel that we fight about things that others don't necessarily fight about? Well, here's the thing about
0: marriage. And again, sitting in a setting like this, not necessarily in our congregation, but couch, you know, to couch with other couples, we hear these kinds of things a lot. And I think here's a quote that I heard one time that is very, it's very appropriate for this kind of setting. And the quote is this, and maybe you've heard some variation of this, never compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. Never compare your behind-the-scenes to someone else's highlight reel because it's the idea that we know what happens behind the closed doors of our house. We know what things we argue about. We know what things we fight about. We know what things we have struggled with from day one in our marriage. But we assume, because we see kind of the highlight reel, the the pretty faces of people when they show up to church, or they show up to work, or they show up to the neighborhood, you know, barbecue or whatever, that they're not arguing about stuff like that. And their marriage is all together, and they've got all their stuff figured out. And so we assume that their behind the scenes is not as messy as ours. And so let me just let you off the hook to say, like, that's not the reality. Everybody's arguing about stuff, and a lot of the things that they're arguing about are the same kinds of things that you're arguing about. You know, one of my favorite scriptures uh, is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it's a scripture that I've used in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different settings. Um, I used to use it in student ministry a lot to talk to students about temptation, but it says this, it says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, the first part of that says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. It's the idea that, you know, the thing that the enemy wants to convince you of is that your problems are different than everybody else's. You can't talk to anybody about it, nobody can relate to you, nobody understands what's going on in your life, but if you see that the struggles that you have, if you take it away from temptation and sin right now and just see that the struggles that you have are common to other people, so that the person sitting beside you may not have the same struggle as you, but somebody else in the room probably does. You know, the couple that's across the row from you may not fight about the same thing you guys are fighting about, but somebody else in the room probably is. And I think that's important for all of us to see that there's a commonality in our struggle.
2: Yeah, I think marriage is kind of a socially accepted, universal thing. Everybody that's married understands the word marriage, and you—it it is two people becoming one, But I don't think that that robs you of your individuality. So I don't think you can compare your marriage to someone else's marriage because the things that aggravate you probably don't aggravate me. I think it comes down to fighting fair and um, not making it personal and making sure that even in your arguments you're just fighting fair, that it's okay to be mad, just do it right. Yeah, that's a good
1: point. If you had to sum up conflict and fighting what would be the most important advice that you could give today? You could talk about this for an entire series probably. <laughs> yeah. But if you had to sum it all up, how would you sum up the most important thing to you guys about fighting?
2: I think that it's, it's normal to fight. I think that there's this perception. I know when we got married, Jeremy never heard his parents argue ever. Ever. And my mom was married multiple times, and we lived in kind of an environment of loud arguments. And so our first fight, Jeremy, I think, thought we were, like, doomed for divorce. I called my dad. Like, <laughs> I'm like,
0: I don't think we're going to make it.
2: <laughs> and I don't for know me, what it was normal it's conversation. <laughs> I broke our
0: marriage three days in. Like, I don't know what's happening.
2: But I think that fighting is normal. Fight everybody that's married, everybody that lives in a home together there is bound to be fights and arguments. I think it's just about how you resolve those fights and arguments that's more important than actually fighting itself.
0: You know, a a year or so ago, we were sitting at a table with several other couples at an event called Couple to Couple. It's something we do about annually around here. And it's for dating, engaged, and married couples to come together, sit around round tables, eat some food, talk, fellowship, learn about relationships, just have a good time together. And we were sitting at a table with four or five other married couples, and we started talking about some of the struggles that we had as couples And we were, you know, we were open and honest, and people were talking about the things that they were arguing about, and maybe it was quality time, maybe it was their sex life, maybe it was something related to their relationship, and we were all laughing about it. Now, maybe some people were putting on, maybe the laughter was to kind of hide the pain, I don't know, but we were all laughing about it because we realized, like, you know, some of the things that my wife is frustrated with me about, every wife at the table was frustrated with their husband about Some of the things that, you know, that hypothetically I might be frustrated with Corey about, even though I never am. Every husband at the table hypothetically was frustrated with their wife about the same kind of issue. There was a commonality around the table, like she's saying. Everybody argues, everybody fights, and a lot of the things that we're arguing about are the same kinds of things. Well, here's what happened. Less than 48 hours later, we were sitting on a couch across from another couple who was sitting on their couch in their living room. And we were talking about the reason that they were contemplating divorce. And here was the interesting thing to us when we got in the car and left. We said, you know, the thing that they're fighting about tonight, the thing that they think is the end-it-all kind of fight, we were laughing about 48 hours ago with other couples. And so in a group setting, when we weren't isolated, when we weren't alone, we were able to see that commonality of struggle that everybody fights, and we were able to go, okay, wait, we're not weird. Okay, let's work through it. Let's kind of make sure we're dealing with the issues here. Let's make sure there's something that's happening that's healthy here to work towards resolution and a solution here. But when you get isolated, when you are pushed away from community, when you're not in life groups, when you're not attending things with other couples in healthy settings, like when you're a couple and you're struggling and you're only hanging out with people that have been divorced, I would say you're in trouble. I think you've got to get around people that have worked through some struggle and worked through some marriage so that you can see them laughing about the stuff that you're crying about and you can go, you know what, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is and maybe if we would just spend some time together, maybe if we'd go seek some help, maybe if we'd go get a little counseling. You know, counseling's not just for people that are broken. Counseling is for people that are committed to making it work. And so I would say to you, don't be afraid of counseling. Don't be afraid of getting help. Don't be afraid of community. Don't get isolated. Lean into community. I think it's really, really important. Corey and I used an illustration not too long ago. Um, and and I'm a super tug of war guy. Like you can look at me and see Please that. Please
2: don't pull me over to that. Um, side of the stage well, I'm really hard. ripped.
0: So I mean, that's going to be hard. But. Um, <laughs> Tug of War is a game that we played at like kids camp, we played in school, we played in youth group. And it's this idea that when we are playing tug of war, what we're trying to do is we're trying to gain advantage on someone on the other side, right? Me and all of my big buddies against all the little, you know, puny girls over there. Like we're going to prove that we're stronger by pulling harder and getting them closer and closer to our side. And so sometimes when we argue as a couple, this is what it looks like that my spouse is on the other side and I'm over here, and whether we're arguing about how we discipline the kids or we're arguing about the way that we spend our money or we're arguing about where we're going to spend Christmas or we're arguing about whatever it is. He came home late. She didn't have dinner. Whatever it is we're fighting about, we start to argue like this. No, I'm going to make a point that wins this argument. No, you're making a point that wins this. Oh, I'm going to bring something up from six months ago that will nail you to the floor. And what we see is that in that argument, If we view our spouse as our opponent, nobody wins. Nobody wins. But if I am willing to lay down my pride and come to the other side and realize that she is not my opponent, but she is my partner, now we are not fighting against one another. We are working together to resolve conflict against the things that are fighting against our marriage from the outside. Because here's the thing, there's a ton of stuff that wants to sit over there and break us up. Yeah. There's a ton of things over there in this world, the enemy, sin, temptation, our calendars, our money, culture, everything. That's, it's all over there already. There's no reason for one of us to pick sides and go stand over yeah. there to try to break us up. If I view her as my partner, I say, listen, we're having a conflict right now about money. But this is not enough for us to fight about. Let's work through it. Let's argue about it. Let's make sure we're doing it right. Let's sharpen one another and our marriage. But let's make sure we stay on the same side, fighting against the forces outside that are trying to ruin our marriage. And I think if you view that, absolutely. If you view conflict in your marriage that way, that even in the midst of an argument, we're still on the same team, you do exactly what Corey just said. You fight fair. Because fighting unfair is where I'm not addressing the issue, I'm attacking the person. Because if I make it personal about her, I'm not really trying to resolve the conflict, I'm trying to win the battle. Yeah. And so anytime that we're arguing, we, we have language that we will throw right into the mix of, it and we'll say, one to the other, we'll say, you're not fighting fair. You're not being fair right now. Because here's what we're doing. We're overreacting or, or worried more about the, the situation here, and we're attacking the person rather than trying to resolve the issue. And I think if you can ever zoom out just a little bit, try to detach from the emotion just a little bit, try to take away how much you're mad and how angry you are, push back just a little bit. Maybe it means take a few minutes away before you engage. Maybe it means change your setting, get in the car, drive to a restaurant because you can't yell in a restaurant usually or they'll kick you out. Maybe you go to a different setting and you do something where you're, you're really addressing the issue and not the person. Yeah,
2: and the Bible refers to anger. I mean, it says that you will be angry but then there's kind of like this clause underneath it that says, "In your anger, do not sin." Right. And I think where we start to attack each other and we start to make it personal, I think that that's where sin creeps into your anger. I think it's okay to have anger if you're resolving the issue, not when you're attacking the individual. That's a
1: good point. That's good. When you had, when you were playing tug of war, you mentioned one of the things that you may argue about is where to spend holidays. And with the holidays coming up in just a couple of months, that that adds in. Possibly the added stress of where do you spend, or rather, who do you spend holidays with? But what would you say to the people in the room that may struggle with arguing about in laws and extended family, and how do you handle those type arguments? Don't handle it.
0: Don't deal with it. It's just just leave it alone. Just go celebrate the holidays by yourself in Tahiti or something. Like don't, do not engage trouble, trouble. The lightning is going. The siren's going off. Don't deal with it. But
2: no, I think advice. it's similar to the tug of war. I think instead of viewing our in-laws sometimes as our enemy, right. we almost view them as our competition. Right. And I think that especially in early marriages, you see where you know, an insecure bride or mother, I was one. And I, so I'm not even being that I did it perfectly. But I think you see where you start to need to prove yourself in your marriage. Like, I know how to do this. I know how to be a wife. I'm going to do it this way. Plus, you two are coming from two completely different backgrounds. And so you both are assuming that the way you did it in your home growing up was the correct way. Right. And so then you get married, and you're starting to try to blend those things, and you're fighting for your way, and they're fighting for our way, or their way. And it becomes this battle, and the in-laws kind of get stuck in that battle and become your enemy and your competition. Yep. And I think that when you stood at the altar and you made a commitment to one another, you aren't just committing yourself to each other. You are committing yourself together as a family. I think you have to quit viewing your in-laws as your component or opponent, opponent I guess. Yeah. Opponent, yeah. Component yeah. is math, right?
0: Could be. Could yeah. be. Yeah. Could be.
2: Your opponents and start viewing them as your family unit and start trying to make things work and view them as your friend and as your family as opposed to your competition and your enemy.
0: Yeah, that's a big deal. I still say don't deal with it. Just
2: but I also think that on the in-law side, there is this idea of, Two people becoming one and trying to figure out life themselves. And so there has to be breathing room on both sides. Well,
0: where I struggled, where I str- Okay, so early on in our marriage, in full transparency, you and my mom struggled a little bit because you were talking about you felt like you were an insecure bride. Yep. I did not do a good job of living out Genesis 2:24. I did not leave father and mother and cling to my wife. I tried to cling to my wife and not tick off my father and mother. And so I kind of tried to live in the middle of this tug-of-war rope going, no, Corey, you win this argument, but now I'm not going to tell my parents exactly what you said. I'm going to change the words a little bit and try to tell them kind of sort of what you said. And then my mom would say something or my dad would say something. I'd come back and say, okay, well, here's what my mom said. What do you think about this? And I played the middle, and what I did is I unfairly actually pitted them against one another. And I did not do well in trying to keep them from fighting. I should have just lived out Genesis 2.24 Kind of leave father and mother, cling to my wife, and and prove to my parents without being rude that like I'm my own man and I've got to make decisions first and foremost for my family now, and I, I did a terrible job. But I that. had to
2: do, I had to learn not to put you in the middle too because they were your family and they deserved um, respect on right. every level. And after a year into our marriage, your mom became my best friend. Yeah, that's I true. Mean, that's true. Very, but I very was more close. wrong than you were wrong. That's true. Always. That was good. That and the was other, good to... this really strange thing happened too. Is we had children, and I had three boys, and I thought, oh my gosh,
0: I will be, a mother-in-law I will be one the in law, <laughs>
2: of the boy, yeah. and that was that was kind of scary too. So one yeah. day we'll be in laws, and I want yeah. my in laws. You'll do great. Children to love me. Okay.
1: <laughs> this has all been really, really good. But talk real quick to the single people in the room, and talk to them about the stage of life that they're in, and how all of this and the marriage stuff. How does it apply to their life?
2: Ooh, single people. I think that there's this progression in life that you are a baby, and then you become a toddler, and then you become a preteen, and then you become a teen, and then you go to college, and then after college, you get a job, and when you get your job, you get married. And so there's this kind of cycle, and you just kind of think that that's the natural steps, but I think in living in kind of that cycle life, you look so forward that you forget present and I think that if you're a single person in the room, I don't think you take for granted your singleness. Right. I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of really cool things, powerful things that happen when you're single. That if you're constantly looking for what's next, when will I get married, when is my spouse coming, when will this happen, you miss some really cool God moments and God opportunities and growth in your singleness. Right. I think I would just say, as cliche as it sounds, like embrace your singleness. Right. Be okay with being single And being settled in your singleness and then allow kind of God to work everything else out. But just be okay being single.
0: Yeah, you know, statistics tell us that the millennial generation, which is people born, depending on which study you're looking at, somewhere around 1980 through the year 2000. Uh, millennials are getting married, if at all, much later than those in previous generations. Baby boomers got married somewhere in their very, very early 20s. Uh, Baby boomer women got married somewhere around 20 or 21, and baby boomer young men got married around 23. But millennial women are not getting married until 25 or 26, and millennial young men are not getting married until about age 30. And so if you view exactly what Corey said as the progression of life is like I'm a teenager and I go to college, and when I get out of college, I'm going to find a job, and then I'm going to get married, and then that doesn't happen, do not immediately turn inward and go, oh my gosh, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me, why does no one want to marry me, what's wrong, you know, don't view it that way. It could just be that the culture's changing, the people that you may be pursuing, are not looking for that to be their next step or their their immediate next step. And I heard one time a pastor say this, and I thought this was incredible advice related to kind of embracing your singleness, this idea that be the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. Like Just just work on yourself. Fall in love with Jesus. Get your finances in order. Stay sexually pure. Like Prioritize quality time with God and with friends and your jobs and just better yourself. Pay off student loans. Pay off debt. Do everything that you can do so that when that day comes, if you desire to be married, that you do get married, that you are the kind of person that the person you're looking for is looking for. And so if you can work on you, then it's gonna be an easier thing to fall in love with someone because now you're the kind of person that they're looking for and they're the kind of person that you're looking for. And I would say this lastly, and I just referenced it a little bit, but even if it's a longer time than you thought, even if it's a delay, it's not punishment. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing broken, but here's what you must prioritize. And I talked about it last week. I would encourage if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week to go back and listen to the podcast related to sexuality, but fight for your sexual purity. Because I will say to you that the statistics are overwhelming related to those who are sexually active prior to marriage. Those women who, uh, who are sexually active prior to marriage are four times more likely to have an affair when they're married. Men who do it are eight times more, those are backwards, men are four times more likely, women are eight times more likely to have affairs when they're married. of people who had premarital sex uh, are likely to get divorced once they get married. So fight for your sexual purity. It is for the benefit of your future marriage, but it's also for the benefit and the sake of your your holiness. And if you say, well, I don't want to be married. I don't think that's in the cards for me. That's great. Then stay single, stay sexually pure, and work out the the plan that God has designed for your life.
1: In like 30, 60 seconds, and this is off book, What would you have to say to the people in the room that might be kind of in that middle stage? They're not single, but they're not married. Those people in a relationship or engaged... Those, t- those places. Yeah, Corey, and I, Corey said a
0: phrase the other day. I've, I think I've heard her say it once or twice. We said, you know, do you date or do you wait? Like when you're single, is it this whole, like, I'm, I'm just going to date and kind of figure out what I like or I'm going to wait and I'm not until I find that right person. And so I would say, like, dating is not evil. Dating is not bad. If you're in a relationship and you feel like that relationship's kind of edifying you, it grows you, it's, it's good for you, it's good companionship, like stay in that and, and enjoy that and have people that you're, you know, that you're doing life with and spending time with. But I do think don't play married. Yeah. Like if you're not married don't pretend you're married. Don't don't live out your kind of fake marriage in this relationship because you're robbing yourself of something that God designed for your future. And I would say have fun, have great, meaningful, deep relationships. And it could be that that person becomes your spouse one day. But if not, you don't want to be so tethered together because you played married that when you try to disengage, you can never fully give yourself to your future spouse because you're still tethered to a relationship from your past.
2: Yeah, and I would also say too that if you're in a relationship and you kind of feel like that person's the one, you're not engaged yet or you haven't, you know, solidified the relationship with a ring or any of those things, but you feel like it's going that way, I would say to you, find couples that you admire their relationship. Find couples that you kind of look at and say, I don't know what necessarily goes on and what all of the dynamics are of their relationship, but that's kind of a picture of what I want. And that doesn't mean you have to be in their house all the time and you have to know them intimately, but I would say that you could watch them and you could learn a lot from couples that you find and you admire, and I would mimic that one day.
0: And there's a lot of great
1: examples in our church. Absolutely. That's good. You had mentioned very, very much so in that last section about sexual purity and things. And once you get into the marriage, what do you do when each spouse has a different sex drive?
0: (laughs) Okay, so here's what I would say about this topic specifically. Drop that bomb on you. (laughs) All right, so here's what I would say. We would love to stereotype this issue. Like we would love to say it's always the man who is more driven in this area, We'd love maybe to say that in some relationships, it might even be the woman that's more driven. We might say that season of life or stage of life, you know, it, it, there, there's some things that are going on in this season. And so we would love to stereotype it. But I would say to you, there is no stereotype for this. Every person is uniquely wired. Every person is uniquely knit together by God, life circumstances, their past, the way they were raised. So there's a whole nature aspect. There's a whole nurture aspect that kind of weigh into individual sexuality. And again, go back and listen to last week's podcast to kind of start with that and see yourself as the Imago Dei and see your spouse as the Imago Dei, the image of God. But I think I would be careful trying to stereotype this because what this will turn into is this will turn into the fight that you think is going to end it. That you think, this, we got to get divorced because nobody's struggling like this. Nobody's arguing about this. Nobody has the same struggle. And here's the other thing I would say before Corey talks for a second. Here, here's the other thing I would say about this. Be careful listening to people tell stories about their sexual uh, relationship with their spouse. Most of them are lies. It's true. I mean, like, we become adults, and we become married, and we turn into high schoolers in a locker room, and we love to tell stories to make ourselves look better or to make our marriage seem better, and it usually comes out of our own insecurity. And here's what happens. Other people hear you talking like that, and they think, wow, that's their, that's their same stru- That's their same issues, whatever. And they don't think that your highlight reel, what you're putting out there, it has anything in common with their behind the scenes. And, man, they feel like now they're broken. There's something wrong with them. And so I would be really careful trying to stereotype that and how we talk about it.
2: Yeah, sex is a big deal in marriage. And I think that it's that taboo subject that nobody wants to address, and so everybody kind of suffers in silence if there's something wrong with them or if they're not having enough sex. And so then it becomes this fighting thing and really a cause of a lot of divorce. Sex is a big deal. One time we were talking, me and Jeremy were were talking to a, a young married couple, and they were talking about sex. And he came home, and he said, i got a crazy question for you. He said, how often, I can't believe I'm even going to reveal this. This Are you ready? This is great. Are you ready? This is great. I don't know.
0: Everybody lean in right here.
2: He said, how often do you think you want to have sex?
0: That was a great question, I thought.
2: So, in my wisdom, I said, that's not a question. That's a three-part question. How often do I want to have sex? How often should we have sex? And how often do we have to have sex? Because in my head, those are three different categories. There are times that in your marriage you will want to have sex. There are times in your marriage you just need to have sex. And then there's that third category where you have to have sex. And it's like when you're fighting with each other so much that you can't stand to look at each other, you just need to go close your bedroom door and have sex. Like, that's the truth. It's the truth. (laughs) I'm going to pick a fight this afternoon.
0: What can we fight about today?
2: (laughs) But I think sex is a big deal, and I think it's an overlooked topic both in and out of the church. I think society has painted this picture that sex is sexy, and I know that 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 sounds a little funny, but like it it paints this picture of of sexiness, and I don't think that sex is always sexy. I think that sex sometimes is sex.
0: That's right, yeah. Uh, especially
2: in different stages of life.
0: Absolutely. This is in the Bible. Uh, Again, last week we talked a lot about this, but let me just kind of reference for married couples what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the command that he gives to husbands and wives, it says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When Corey's talking about like, we just have to, or we need to, it's really connected to this last idea. We don't want to there to be such a divide between us physically that yeah. the enemy can step in that gap and try to tempt either of us to look elsewhere. Yeah. And so there's definitely an aspect to sexuality that it's, it's for the sake of one another. Yeah. All jokes aside, it's for the sake of one another and our own personal purity for our eyes, for, for the lust of our heart, those kind of things we want to turn our affection towards each other and anytime that there is a great divide there and a lot of this is stage of life I do realize that but anytime there's a great divide there we've got to make sure that we are the ones that are filling that divide we're coming together in that divide and we're not allowing the enemy to bring anything else in between us in that regard. And I think that's a really, really key point for all of us. I think the other aspect of this is that we have to understand that sexual activity between a husband and a wife is not just about the physical activity. I would say that that that's the case for every kind of sexual relationship. There's an emotional connection, a psychological connection, a mental, you know, kind of connection there, and obviously the physical. And that's why there's so many different things that happen for those that are not husband and wife when they do engage in sex with one another. But I think in our marriage, for the sake of our marriage, when we view sex as something that holistically improves our marriage and we view it like that, then it's something that can
1: make us healthier in every aspect of our marriage. This can definitely be connected to the sexual aspect of your marriage. But what happens when you get bored with your marriage?
2: Bored in your marriage. I think that the word bored in your marriage or the word bored in general is a very selfish term. I think that marriage, a lot of times we think that it's about what it does for me and how it fulfills me. And to say I'm bored with a, your marriage is to say I'm not fulfilled or you're not doing something for me. And I think that that's a very selfish term. I have four kids, and on Saturdays when their baseball games are rained out or when they finish all their homework, sometimes they'll say to me, I'm bored. And I would say to them a lot of times, or I do just like you have, every, the mom phrase, go read a book. Go outside and play. Go play with your buddies or your your friends or whatever. Find something to do. And I would say the same in your marriage. I would say that your marriage isn't about you. It's not about a feeling of boredom or what somebody could offer you. But I would say that if you're bored, find ways to shake it up. Go find something fun to do. Start a conversation about your day. Just break up the routine of life a little bit so that you can find a little more fulfillment and enjoyment in the everyday routine of life.
0: Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 talks about this idea. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a submission idea that exists within all relationships, but especially within a marriage relationship that says that I am submitted to you and that is the way that I combat my selfishness. And so if I view marriage as how do you make me feel? How, how, what can you do to serve me? What can you do to help me feel better? What can, like if I view marriage that way, then there may come a day when I get bored because she quits making me feel a certain way or she's done things that, you know, I, it doesn't do the same things for me that it used to do. And if I view it that way, I'm viewing it selfishly. So I have to then put myself aside, lay my pride down and say, I submit to you out of reverence for Christ because I choose not to be selfish. I want to be someone that serves you.
1: What happens when or if you fall out of love?
0: Fall out of love. You know, we hear this a lot. It's one of the reasons, no matter what we call it, that divorce has become more and more rampant because this became an acceptable reason for divorce. Um, Psychologists would tell us that according to our brains, the feeling of falling in love is exactly the same mentally and, and physiologically as taking a hit of some kind of hard drug. If you remember being 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever age it was, when you kind of first had that first crush, that first love, and you looked at someone, you man, I love them. I, I mean, whatever it was, that feeling that you felt is the exact same to your brain as taking a hit of a hard drug. Well, just like with drug use, eventually that wears off and you've got to get another hit of it to feel the same kind of feeling. And eventually you try to look for more of a hit to get the same kind of feeling. And so it, it wears off, it lessens off. And the same is true with the emotional feeling of love. And if anybody ever told us that you're always going to feel love the way that you initially felt it, they were wrong. Because the greatest gift that I can give Corey is not to look at her and say, I feel love towards you the same way that I did when we were 13 years old, or when we were 16 years old, or when we were 20 years old, or the day that we said I do, or that love that I felt the first time that I heard our first child's heartbeat. When we were I just, there was a love that I, If I tell her I feel that same emotion, that's not the greatest gift I can give to her. You know the greatest gift I can give to her is to say, you know what, even on the days when I'm annoying and the kids are chaotic and there's no quality time and there's not even much quantity of time, we're not having sex and everything seems to be going wrong and our schedules are going in different directions, I choose psychologically, emotionally, physically to declare the same love that I have for you and the commitment that I made to you. I choose Express that to you.
2: Yeah, on your wedding day, you stand in front of a pastor or you stand in front of a group of people and you Mm -hmm. recite vows. And in that vow, you don't say, I commit to always get the tingly feeling when you hold my hand. I commit to always have my breath taken away when you enter enter into a room. You say to that person, for better or worse, I choose to love you. It's a commitment. It's a choice to love. I think that for me, it's not about a matter. If you can fall in love, you can fall out of love. If you choose love, that's a choice that you make every day, and I think that it becomes the most meaningful part in your marriage. I think, too, if you talk to people that have a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, people that have chosen love, you would hear them say that I don't love them the same way that I did the first time they held my hand or when we stood in the altar. They would probably tell you that they have a deeper love for their spouse than they have ever even did then. I know that the same is true for me. I don't necessarily get butterflies when you walk into a room, but my love for Jeremy is deeper today, almost 12 years in than it was the day we stood at the altar. And told a group of 300 people that we love each other and we were committing ourselves to each other. And so I think choosing love and getting to know each other and committing yourself to one another brings about a deeper, more intimate love than any emotional love or high could ever give you.
0: You know the reason that marriage is a tough topic? Because your marriage is not about you. Yeah. Marriage is this tough thing because' it's, it's personal and then we feel it personally. we wear it personally. We're connected to somebody personally, and it feels personal. But Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, and I've already quoted one verse there, but Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that your marriage is actually representative of something else. It says in verse 22, "Wives wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then verse 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Here's what you need to know about marriage, whether you're single or married in the room. Marriage is not just about the husband and the wife. Marriage is about God expressing and reflecting his love towards all of mankind. And so when my wife stands beside me in any room, it's not just about Jeremy and Corey what you should see when you look at a marriage with its flaws, with its imperfections, when you look at any marriage, what you should see is a reflection of the love of God towards every person that you can see with your eyes. Because what God says is that marriage is representative of Christ's love for the church, so much so that he gave everything he had, including his own life, for the sake of his bride. And it's saying that the bride, the church, the people of God then would submit themselves to the authority of God out of response to the love that God was expressing towards them. And so when you're fighting, when you're arguing, don't don't get on each side of the rope. Say, no, no, we're gonna stand together and we're gonna work through any issues that we do have for the sake of the reflection to our children and to our neighbors and to our coworkers. He says, listen, my marriage, when you look at it, I don't want you to see Jeremy and Corey. I want you to see God's love for you. And so in our imperfections, in, in the flaws that we have, in this one, most of which I bring to the table, we say, listen, don't, don't look here. Look through this to see God. And the enemy knows that, and the enemy's working hard to destroy that because the enemy doesn't want anybody to see anything about God's love for them. And so he wants to break down marriages, and he wants to take people that committed to love and better and in worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And he wants people to go, you know what? But I fell out of love. I'm bored. I don't feel the same butterflies I used to feel. And so I guess there's something wrong in this marriage. And so I'm out. And then what do people see? They say, okay, well, if that's the case, then evidently that's how God views me. As long as I'm doing the right things towards God, then God loves me. But whenever I stop being perfect, whenever I stop making God feel a certain way, whenever I stop singing good worship songs, whenever I quit reading my Bible, whenever I quit going to church, then evidently God disengages from me too. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'm committed for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, In the good times and the bad, we are in this together. So I don't know what your situation is today. I don't know if you're in a marriage and it's really healthy. I don't know if you were in a marriage and it it broke apart and and you're left kind of holding the pieces or maybe you've kind of remarried and so now you're in a new marriage and you're trying to make that work and fight against the statistics and the odds of second marriages and all that that entails. Maybe you're single today and you say, man, I, I don't know if marriage is in the cards for me or maybe you're like, I'm single and I want to be married so bad and I'm not sure why it hasn't happened. I don't know where you're at today. But I'm going to ask Corey just to pray over marriage as an institution of God today. That if you're married, that your marriage would reflect the love of God. If your marriage has broken and you're trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together, that you would see and people would see the grace of God and the redemption of God through the way that you take some next steps. If you're single and you're trying to seek the next steps, that you would stay sexually pure and that you would hold on to that so that when you engage in marriage, you are a reflection of the story of God's love towards humanity. And we're just going to pray over marriages today.
2: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. And I thank you that at the beginning of humanity and creation, you said that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And you created a helpmate, a partner for them. And then in your words, you declare that it's the way that we should show the love of Christ to a hurting world i pray for every marriage in this room today i pray for restoration in marriages i pray that you restore broken hearts i pray that you unify couples i pray that your love would be present in their home i pray for a divine hedge of protection around their marriage that the enemy and the things of the enemy would never be able to get in. I pray for their children, that they would live a life that reflects you, that their children one day want what they have because of what example has been given to them. I pray for the single people in the room, those that long to be married and those that have committed to be single. I pray that in their singleness, Father, that they would not sin. I pray that they would keep themselves pure before you and that if or when the day comes and you bring someone into their path they can stand in front of a group of people and commit themselves to one another both in love and in purity i pray for those that have been hurt in marriages that are now divorced or separated from a spouse that you would bring healing to hearts and lives that you would restore brokenness, that you would enter into hearts, Father, and begin to heal and redeem. I pray now, Father, for the commitments that have been made in this room between married couples, Father, that they would commit their marriages to you and that we as a body of people, Canton Church, a group of married individuals, would do a good job at reflecting the love of Christ through a marriage to the world. That although we are an imperfect people, we will strive to love you as individuals and as a couple. Protect our marriages, protect our homes, protect our children, and then give us the very desires of our heart. In Jesus' name, I pray.